Good morning, Echo Lake. Everybody that's here in person, anybody joining on at home, thank you guys so much for the privilege of being here again. Uh, I, for risk of sounding like a broken record, I know I say it every time, but it means the world to me to have the opportunity to dive into God's word with you this morning. So thank you so much for this privilege. I'm excited. I think God has a good word for us today, but I'm going to be honest, I think it's going to be a challenging word for us today. Uh, I wish that I felt more comfortable after this past week of preparing and diving into this passage uh, to share with you. But honestly, I was more convicted than anything. And so I'm hoping that today as we dive into God's word, we can all share in the conviction together so that we can step into what he has in store for us. You know, if you've been following along or if you're you know new to the game, kind of bring it up to speed. Where we're at right now as a church is we are in a series through the book of Esther. And we've been looking at how God is always at work all around us, even if it feels like we don't see him. And so we've been following the journey of Esther and the Jewish people through some difficult circumstances in their lives, right? So basically what had happened was there was this uh, person that was appointed by the king uh, to kind of lead and, and do some things in the land. And, and this guy was not a good person. His name was, was Haman. And Haman decided that he wanted everybody to bow down and worship him because he was God's gift to the world. Right, And Haman was just full of all this pride, all this arrogance and things like that. And so when he made this decision that, that he wanted everybody to bow down and worship him, there was another man named Mordecai who said, absolutely not, I will not do that. I worship the one true God and only that God. So I will bow to no one except God. Now, as you can imagine, for somebody that's super prideful and wants everybody to bow down to him when he finds out that that person is not going to do it. It went over really well, right? Um, not at all, actually. Haman was incredibly upset and frustrated by it and said, you know what? All right, fine. You don't want to bow. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have you killed. And so he goes to the king and convinces the king that, you know what? These Jewish people, they are a threat to you. You need to get them out of here. So let's murder them all. The king's like, well, okay, we don't want any threats, so let's go ahead and do that. And so the king makes this rule and this edict that at this certain time, all the Jewish people are going to be murdered. Now, as you can imagine, if you were a Jewish person, you're not going to be okay with that. And so they were really upset. They were really frustrated. And so uh, this man named Mordecai, who refused to bow, reaches out to his niece, who just so happens to be the queen, Queen Esther, and says, Esther, you need to do something about this. We can't let this happen. And so where we're jumping into today in our, in our story is Esther's conversation with the king. So if you have your Bible, I want to ask you to meet me in the book of Esther chapter 8. We're actually just going to be reading the first six verses today because there's a lot that takes place in this account and in this story. But what I want to focus on this morning is Esther's conversation and Esther's interaction with the king. So let's read this together. Then we're going to pray and we're going to unpack it. Esther 8, starting in verse 1, it says, that same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman. Haman was the guy that wanted to kill everybody. Um, the king found out that Haman wanted to do this. He was not okay with it. So the king said, okay, cool. You know what? You want to kill everybody here. I'm going to turn the tables over on you. And guess what? You're out of here. Um, so that's what takes place. So then Esther is given the, the home and, and things like that of Haman. So it says, Queen Esther, they say to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai, Esther's uncle, came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, 
which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. This is what she said. If it pleases the king, and if he regards me with favor, and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Will you pray with me? Father, God, I pray that as we dive into your word this morning, this would not just be words on a page, but we would hear this as the very voice of you, our King. Lord, there's a lot in here. There's a lot of things that we can talk about, but I pray that in the midst of all the, the content, so to speak, we would focus on your character, your heart, and your voice above it all. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to what you're saying and how you want us to respond to this today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not just left us as children without any understanding or direction, but you have intervened, you have protected, and you have provided as a good father to give us this word as a guide for our lives. So Father, I pray that we would hold your word and your truth with authority this morning, that we would give your word authority over our lives, that it would change us, challenge us, and convict us today. Lord, there's so many things that we could be doing in this very moment. Lord, there's so many distractions, there's so many responsibilities that we all have, but I pray, Lord, that in this moment, in this time, for these next few minutes, the greatest responsibility that we would feel, the greatest burden that we would wrap ourselves around today would be to be good listeners of you, our Father. Father, have your way. Move in ways that only you can move so that when we leave this place today, we can say, only God could have done what just took place. And I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So I wanna start with talking about something that is completely non-controversial and completely everybody is on the same page on and everybody uh, always agrees and everybody loves this whole topic. I wanna to talk about the topic of wearing masks today. Um, <laughs> and I promise you, that I had every intention of talking about this today long before the middle of the week when there was the whole thing about, oh, you don't have to wear masks, but now you do. And no, nope, you still do, but you don't have to, but you should, but you shouldn't. And, and I just had to laugh when I started watching all of these reports because I'm like, God, seriously, like you could have given me any other thing to talk about and now you're gonna bring this up like it's already a tense subject. But anyway, you know what? I've never been one to shy away from the awkwardness or the tension, so let's just jump right into it, right? Wearing masks, it's fun, isn't it? Um, but you know, we're about a year and change into having to wear masks basically anytime you went indoors, right? And I can remember when I went to the store pretty much the first time that we were required and everybody was required to wear masks when they were inside, right? And I remember going in, now I was in the food store for this particular moment and I, I do a lot of food shopping because um, I love to cook, so I love to go to the food store. Um, so I go to the food store quite often, a few times a week, unfortunately. Um, but 
I like to go there and I go kind of the same times, the same place, the same store. And you know, when you go to the same place over and over, you start to see people kind of more often and start to recognize faces and, and things like that, even if it's just at the food store. And I remember this day in particular, it was the first day that I had to go into the food store when everyone was wearing masks. And you know, I went into the food store and that day, I had been doing this the same way, the same time, the same strategy every time, but this day was different. Because this day I went inside and I noticed something about people. You see, I think what ended up happening in our lives is before we wore masks, now hang with me here, it was a lot easier to hide. Now here's what I mean by that. You see, when we have full use of our face and our, our mouth and our facial expressions and things like that, it's pretty easy to convince people of something about ourselves. But I noticed something that day when I went into the food store and I basically, everybody had this bottom half of their face removed. And that was this, it was a lot harder for us to hide because the eyes don't lie. The eyes don't lie, right? The eyes, you've heard a ton of different quotes. The eyes are the, the window of the soul, right? The eyes show you what's, what's happening in, in the heart or what's going on behind the scenes. But the interesting thing was when I went into the store that day and all I could see was people's eyes, I started to see people completely differently because we couldn't hide anymore from what was really going on. And you know, I saw that mom that I had seen more times than I could count that, that has the little kids that she's walking through the aisles and the kids are running all over the place, pulling all the fruit off and having it all hit the floor. And I, I look in the eyes of, of that mom with the young kids and I see weariness and fatigue. I see stress and exhaustion. And I was going a little bit further and I saw, you know, the guy in his work clothes that was having the little basket running through the aisles as quick as he could because he knew he needed to get to wherever he needed to go. And he was hurried and he was exhausted and he was tense and he was struggling. And I didn't notice that before. Then I get to the checkout line and I see the woman behind the, the cashier or the, the cash register. And I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of all of this, they were one of the most at-risk people on the planet because they were interacting with all these people over and over. And I got to the checkout line to check out my groceries and I see the woman who's scanning my groceries and I just see fear and hopelessness and worry in her eyes. And I remember getting into my truck after all of this had taken place and my heart was hurting for two reasons. Number one, because I saw so many hurting, hopeless, and struggling people. And number two, because I had been in that situation more times than I could count, and I hadn't noticed it until right then. I wonder for you, when was the last time you looked in someone's eyes? When was the last time you picked your head up, made eye contact with someone, and saw the hurt, the hopelessness, the pain, the fear, the weariness, the struggle, the loss in their eyes. Sadly, I think many of us don't see it enough. We don't see it enough because we've become so comfortable with doing what we wanna do, when we wanna do it, the way we wanna do it to get what we wanna get. I think that was another interesting thing about this past year, year and a half. It flipped our whole world upside down. 
Now it wasn't always as easy to just do whatever we wanted to do. It forced us to look at life differently. And I wonder, what did you see? What did you see as you've been watching and looking over this past year? When you looked in someone's eyes, did you see the hurt? Did you see the worry, the fear, the exhaustion, the loss? This morning, what I wanna talk about is, is what do we do when we see it in someone's eyes? What do we do when we lift our eyes up, look into theirs and see something that doesn't make us feel good? You know, as we're in this passage today, I believe that Esther answers this question for us. I believe that she shows us by her actions and her attitudes, how we should respond when we look into someone's eyes and we see the hurt, we see the pain and we see the fear. Esther, as, as we know, right, she's, she's going through this, this moment with the king. And what she is doing is intervening for a group of people. Now, who were these group of people? They were people that were hopeless, that were hurting, that were struggling, and that were losing. See, what happened to these people? They were told they were going to be killed. And you know what? There was nothing they could do about it. They were completely helpless and hopeless. They could not just go to the king and be like, hey, king, do you mind? Can you not do this? That would be great. But no, because of no fault of their own, they were put in a situation that by all intents and purposes was hopeless, which left them feeling helpless. And Esther recognizes this about the people. And look at what she does in response to it because I believe this should be our response as well. Verse three, it says that Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. It says Esther again, notice that word again, pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. What's Esther's response to the hopelessness that she's experiencing and that she's seeing in the eyes of her family, her friends, her relatives, the people in her world? She's passionately pleading to the king on their behalf. Esther goes to the king and is passionately pleading to him on their behalf. Now I wanna zoom this out for a second because we don't necessarily have a king that we have to go to when we see people in the food store or wherever it is in our lives that are hurting, that are hopeless, that are you know, going through the things that they're going through. But you know what? What did the king represent to Esther and to the people? The king represented the authority. The king represented a place of power. The king represented the person that could do something about their situation. So what is Esther doing? She's going to the place. She's going to the person of authority. She's going to the person who can do something about what is causing this hopelessness in her people's lives. And she's pleading with him to intervene. You know, we may not have a king, but we have the king. And I wanna ask you this question this morning. When was the last time you pleaded 
on the behalf of the hopeless. You pleaded on the behalf of the hurting. You pleaded on the behalf of the lost to the one who has the power and the authority to intervene in their lives. Sadly, I think many of us throw up what I'll call pop shot prayers when we see people hurting. You know, pop shot is basically this quick, whoop, I'm just gonna throw this up there. And I think sadly, many of us will do this. Oh, that person's struggling. Dear God, you know, help their situation to be better. Oh, and also bless the food that I'm about to eat. Or God, this person's in pain or this person doesn't know you yet. Um, can you please send someone to tell them about you. Oh, and help me to have a good night's sleep too. Pop shot prayers. Now, are they wrong? No. But if that's the extent of our prayer life for the hurting, the hopeless, and the lost, we are vastly missing out on the power and the authority that the king has to intervene in their story. Esther went, look at it, it says she went again, right? So what did that mean? It wasn't a one and done type of thing. It wasn't a one and done type of conversation. It said she went again, that she fell at his feet, weeping, pleading with him to intervene. Could you imagine how our lives would change? Can you imagine how our stories would look? How our families would be impacted if we pleaded on their behalf to the power and the authority of our King? I remember, I've shared this a little bit, but I remember when my sister-in-law was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember early on when we had just found out that she was diagnosed, one day my wife was in our backyard and she was outside, she had her Bible open, she had her journal with her and she was sitting in the backyard. And I remember looking out the window and I looked at her and I saw her mouth going a mile a minute and I saw tears streaming down her face. And I could see the passion, the energy that she was exuding in that moment. And it caught me so off guard that I went outside and I said to her, I'm like, Jen, are you okay? What, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm praying for my sister. And I was so taken back by that because my wife, there she was in the middle of our backyard in our little house in a little corner of, of Passaic County, was sitting there passionately pleading to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who has all power and all authority to intervene in my sister-in-law's life. And there my wife was, pleading passionately for God's intervention into her story. When was the last time you passionately pled to the King of Kings for the hurting, the hopeless, the helpless, and the lost? Esther again and again and again went to the king and pleaded with him on their behalf. Then it says that, that when she went there, look at, look at her response. It says she begged him. Now, I don't want it to seem like we have to go into the presence of God like a, a puppy with its tail between our legs because we don't, because we're sons and daughters of the king. But I think this picture of Esther begging the king is a picture 
of the humility that we should take into the presence of the king. And so she humbly went into the presence of the king and said to him, if it pleases the king, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. This is such a powerful statement that Esther makes. Because let me remind you of something here. Haman, or Mordecai, reminded Esther that, hey, you need to go speak to the king on behalf of the Jewish people, but don't forget, you are also Jewish. So Esther was just as much in jeopardy of losing her life in this moment as all the other Jewish people. But what did Esther do when the heat was turned up and the moment was put before her? She got one chance, one chance to go into the presence of the king and she got one ask. Remember what the king told her. He said, listen, Esther, before, before the king even knew what was going on, he said, Esther, whatever you want is yours. I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. Esther was given a blank check. She was given the ability to ask for anything she wanted. And what did she ask for? Not to save herself, but to save the people. What a difference of perspective that is. I don't know many of us that if given that same opportunity, wouldn't be quick to say, oh, King, you're gonna kill the Jews. Hey, you, you didn't know this yet, but now you do, I'm Jewish. So if you could just go ahead and exclude me from this bad day, I'd really appreciate it. Instead, she said, please save my people, save my family, save my friends. She didn't ask for herself. She asked for the struggling, the hopeless, the helpless, and the lost. I think what we need to understand in our lives is that our response when we see the hurting, the hopeless, the helpless, and the lost, is to not view our lives as a golden ticket, but rather a golden opportunity. We need to view our lives not as a golden ticket, but rather a golden opportunity. Remember the movie? It was my favorite one growing up, Charlie, uh, Willy Wonka, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Not the one with Johnny Depp, he ruined it. I'm talking the old school one, right? <laughs> the old school one. But what happens in that movie? Willy Wonka, the guy that, that's got the coolest chocolate factory in the world, a little crazy, but hey, he decides, hey, I'm gonna give five kids a tour of the chocolate factory. So he sends out, wrapped up in the chocolate bars, these golden tickets. And if you found one, that was your chance to get everything that every kid ever dreamed, a tour of the best chocolate factory on the planet. And so little by little, the movie unfolds and these four other kids were all selfish and they get their golden ticket and all they care about is themselves. But then that fifth ticket takes, takes place and what, who gets it? Who remembers? Who gets the last ticket? 
It's his movie. Charlie, exactly. Charlie opens up the bar of candy. Here's the golden ticket. And do you remember what his response was? He's excited beyond belief, but what does he say next? Grandpa Joe, I want you to come with me. I want you to come with me. You see, Charlie didn't just want to experience all of this for his own good. He wanted to bring his grandpa with him. He wanted to bring the guy that he loved to experience it too. He took that golden ticket and used it as a golden opportunity to bring someone to experience something he knew they needed and wanted and would enjoy. And I wonder, do we do the same thing in our lives when we see people that are hurting, that are struggling, that are in pain and that are lost? Do we look at them as a golden opportunity to help them see the very things that we've experienced in our lives? Or do we simply say, I got my ticket. I can't wait to get to where I wanna go. Are we viewing our lives as golden tickets or golden opportunities? Are we willing to take the position that we've been given as sons and daughters of the King and say, hey, come here. I want you to experience what I've been given as well. Or do we see the hurting, the hopeless, the lost, and do one of these? What are you using your eyes for this morning? To see where you wanna go or to see who you wanna bring with you? We've gotta lift our eyes up and use our position as a golden opportunity not just a golden ticket. So Esther goes on to say, if it pleases the king, if there's anything that I've done that has gained favor in your eyes, king, can you please save the people? And she says, for how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Esther's response is, I, I, can't even, I can't even look and bear the thought of people that I love, that I care for, perish and struggle. I cannot bear the thought of letting them see or, or letting them go through what I see they're going to go through. This is the question God's been hammering home to me all week. Can I bear it? Can you bear it? Can we as sons and daughters of the one true king bear the thought of the people that we love the people that we do life with, the people that cross our paths every day that we see hurting, hopeless, lost, can we bear the thought of knowing they will die and they will die without the hope that we have found? Can you bear it?
Unfortunately, I believe with all my heart that especially in this area, it's become way too easy to bear. It's become way too easy to simply focus on what we have, what opportunity we've been given, or even what we don't have that we think we should, that we completely lose sight of the hurting and the hopeless all around us. But as sons and daughters of the King, we need to be willing to passionately plead on the behalf of the hurting and the hopeless. Passionately plead for them. We need to be willing to take our golden ticket and use it as a golden opportunity to bring those with us. And then lastly, we must be willing to see the struggle and enter into it. We must be willing to see the struggle and enter into it. I love the fact that Esther says, I can't bear to see the disaster fall on my people. There was ownership in what she was saying. These are my family. These are my friends. These are my people that I do life with. And I cannot bear to see them lost. So she entered into the struggle with them. And I wonder how many of us would have done the same. I wonder how many of us, though, in our lives have become so comfortable that we've lost sight of our conviction. I wonder how many of us are so thankful that we've gotten the golden ticket that it's caused such a great level of comfort in our lives that we've lost the conviction of the king to go and be his hands and feet to the hurting, the hopeless, and the lost. How many of us have said, not me, not today, I'm good. But I'll throw up a prayer for that one later on so that I could feel better about myself and that I could say, oh no, I have a heart for that. If you looked at your heart this morning, what would you see? Would you see conviction or comfort? Would you respond like Esther and say, not my people, not today, not if I have anything to say about it. Now, as we close this morning, I want to encourage us to take an honest, humble look at our stories, to take an honest, real look at the heart that we have and the eyes that we use to see the world around us. I want us to ask ourselves, am I comfortable or am I living from a place of conviction? It was a great prayer that, that I think I mentioned at one of the services last time I preached, but God has not let me shake it since that time. And, and I actually wanted to read you the rest of it today because I think this is a prayer that could literally change our lives. It could change our families. It could change the way that we view the world around us. It's a prayer written by a man from, uh, called Sir Francis Drake. 
And he says this, disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves. When was the last time you prayed that? Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves. When our dreams have come true, when our dreams have come true because we've dreamed too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the water of life. Are you willing to ask the Lord, the true king to disturb us this morning, to shake us from our comfort, to give us eyes to see the hurting and the hopeless and the lost, and the courage to go after them. Are you willing to say, disturb us, Lord?